let's see who else is going to make noise as soon as I... <laughs> as soon as I try to start talking. Uh... <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Professors, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature all discuss the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra. I have been watching The Haunting of Bly Manor. Have you? I haven't yet. That's the um, sequel, right? To... Let's see if Misty can remember the name of something from pop culture. Everyone's favorite game on the Professor's Podcast. The Haunting of Manor House? That is not <laughs> correct. <laughs> what was it? Manor Hill something. I think A I have haunting? all the pieces. No, it's The Haunting of Hill House, Missy. The Haunting of oh. Hill House. Okay. Which I know is confusing because there's those words are used in lots of horror movies. Hills, houses, and hauntings. The first but season yes. was really good, so I'm but looking that, forward to the second season. And it's going to be kind of like American Horror Story. Same actors, same tone, but different, different story. Different story. Yeah, this is based on a Henry James novel. Oh, okay, interesting. And I'm Missy, and I'm going to go vote tomorrow. Oh, really? Uh, vote for what? Um, let's see, my senator. Is this like an American Idol thing, or there's an election happening? I'm not. Oh, yeah. I'm not, a, yeah. I'm not aware. You know what? Good for you. <laughs> Your life is probably better if you're not aware. I don't. I don't actually know if it's possible with the media saturation. Uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure they talk about it on Entertainment Tonight at this point. So even if you're actively avoiding it, I don't. I don't think you can really actually get away from it. Yes. These people, they're like, well, I'm still undecided. Like, what world do you live in? I want to be there. I don't With know. The coin. You're waiting for the muse to strike you. At that point, I, I mean, I almost want to say maybe that particular person shouldn't be voting because what are you doing? Obviously, I advocate for people to vote, but yes. <laughs> if you're flipping a coin, I don't know that's the best strategy. So today we are going to talk not about the election, but about voting. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. Of course you are. It's like 80% history, if not more. Is this an important anniversary of something this year, Missy? Yes. So for 100 years in this country, women now have the right to vote. That's Some exciting. women. Some women. Some women. So 100 years of the, let's see if the Allegra can remember a thing from history, our second favorite game, the 19th Amendment? Yes, the 19th Amendment in 1920. Okay, so the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment, and I'm guessing that this is being recognized appropriately across the nation? You know... There were a lot of plans. I'll say that. There were a lot of plans and a lot of things were going to happen. And then we had this pandemic. I was at the National Archives in December of 2019 and they had the uh, women's suffrage. Is it an exhibit? Collection? It I'm not sure what, what the best. Yeah. So they had, you know, lots of historical photographs. Um, including the much debated historical photograph that where they blurred out the sign. Yes. Um, and then they had to put that back. I must have seen it, although I didn't take note of it at the time. Uh, a lot of interactive things. I mean, it was very, very modern compared to other things I've seen previously at the National Archives. But it was a very cool exhibit. And honestly, I was just bored. And went, I was like, where do I want to go? I guess the National Archives. And I didn't even know that's what would be prominently featured. But yes. It makes my heart hurt. But <laughs> 
you just were like, eh, I guess I'll do this. I wanted to go see if Nicolas Cage would be there. And was he? He was not. It's disappointing for you, I bet. Yes, no one was trying to steal the Declaration of Independence the day I was there. Did you have a plan to stop it if that was happening? That's that's why I went, actually. Awesome. Yeah. There's a picture of a Barbie doll in our notes about the suffrage movement, and I need you to explain what that's about. So, because I apparently am really good at this audio format, and I send you pictures. It's <laughs> great. This, it gives me a way to mock you. This is a Susan B. Anthony Barbie. Okay. And are you pro or anti Susan B. Anthony Barbie? I go back and forth. Because on the one hand, I think, oh... This is a way to reach people who don't have this information or who wouldn't go look it up on their own. And on the other hand, it seems like a blatant grab for money by a corporation. Sure. Yeah. So I I don't know where I fall. I will tell you as a child, Barbies were very important in my family. And so I think it's great. I don't know that Susan B. Anthony should be the one or at the very least the only one of the women who fought for women's suffrage to be honored. I guess it's an honor in the form of a Barbie doll, but don't think she will be the only one. I do think this is going to be a series, but uh, this is just the one that's out right now. You know, it's a, it's an open door to have a conversation. Like you said, maybe people weren't aware, weren't thinking about it. And a lot of people collect Barbies. My daughter did tell me that this one's ugly. (laughs) Comparatively, it is not as fashionable as your expectations of a Barbie would be. That's the best way I can put that. (laughs) All right, so we are going to talk today about women's suffrage, the 19th Amendment, and the history of women voting. And before Misty gets to launch into her favorite history lecture, uh, I have some questions. So the first question is, we're becoming increasingly aware of the fact that the way history is taught in public school or has been previously is not ideal in terms of accuracy or representation. So if you think about the way this is taught in like K through 12, middle school, high school, what are the biggest gaps or the biggest errors in the way people our age learned about suffrage, women's suffrage? So I think part of the problem is that people our age and probably older than us actually weren't taught history. We were taught civics. And so we are taught this story of like America continually improving, right? And it's always getting better. Yes. Exceptionalism. Absolutely. And that's not true. This isn't a linear history. So we have women that had the right to vote and then they lost it. And then some women get it back, but not all women. So it's not this triumphant, progressive story that we like to tell. Telling a real history story just takes a lot of nuance and it's hard to do that. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get a lot of nuance with sixth graders. You're really not. So to me, and you know, I was born in the eighties, seems pretty standard. Uh, you know, everybody should be able to vote. Why was it so hard to convince people or to achieve this legally, uh, constitutionally? Why was this such a challenge? It seems very basic. It does to us, but we grew up this way, right? So every time you see a redistributing of power across this country, you're going to see social and political unrest. 
when we go from only property owners can vote to, well, all adult white males can vote, there's unrest because what are these unwashed masses going to vote for? And then they elect Andrew Jackson. So maybe there was a point there, right? (laughs) Not Misty's favorite president. (laughs) When George Washington is elected, 6% of all Americans could vote. And then we get to the 19th Amendment, and now it's, okay, now all white, middle-class and women without felony convictions can vote federally. That's still not everyone. So you're saying you're deconcentrating power, and it's a threat to some exactly. people. If I okay. have all of the power, because I'm only 6% of the population, why would I want to give that up? That's true. I mean, because you care about other people, but... Um, so if I wanted to read a nonfiction book, which I don't, um, <laughs> but like a good one that's interesting about okay. the history of women's suffrage, which book would you got to pick one? So I would pick Why They Marched. And the reason I picked this one is because it's accessible. It's not a real dense history, mm-hmm. but it's a very diverse and well-told history. So, so it's let's... not just about the white suffragettes. Exactly. Okay. It looks at all different types of women who wanted the right to vote. And even some women that I think I might forget to include in the narrative. Polygamous Mormon, who's in this book. Interesting. So that author is Susan Ware. Ware, W-A-R-E. All right. Uh, I'm afraid now to say this, but I guess we're just going to unleash the gates of Missy talking about history. And tell me about the right to vote for women. All right. So we're going to go all the way back. Of course we are. To the colonial era. Now, I could have gone back further to the Iroquois, but I didn't think you could stand it. So we're only (laughs) going to go back to the colonial era. What I want you to know here is that in several colonies, women actually had the right to vote. So New York, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey. Um, As a side note here, New Jersey's was a mistake. They weren't trying to give women the right to vote. They just forgot that women existed. (laughs) So they wrote all persons. And then women showed up to vote and they're like, oh, no, that's not what we meant. (laughs) So New Jersey's only lasted about 10 years. That's literally an argument that women are people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because when you say all persons, that includes women. All right. So I know that we think of like the Constitution as this great democratic document that like ushers in this new era of world history and to some extent kind of. But the Constitution doesn't set any federal standards for voting. So once we become the United States, each state has to go back in and codify its voting laws. And this is where you start to see women lose the right to vote. The Constitution helped us lose the right to vote is what you're saying? Because once the Constitution's in place, every state now has to really think about all of the laws they're putting together as this new entity of it being a state, right? We've gone from these previous things to now we are states in the United States of America. We really need to think about our state constitutions. So what most states are going to do is restrict voting to adult white males who own property. Adult 21 or above. And the reason you had to own property was because people who did not own property don't have a stake in society. The people, idea People sorry. really thought that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But you still live in society even if you don't own property. But what if they wrote a bill that said all of the rich people are going to lose all their land and then all the poor people voted for it? Okay. All right. Just a lot of what ifs going crazy there. Okay. Yeah. So we see a concentration of power in that group that we've talked about. 
I'm going to say middle class and above because you could own land or property or have a stake in a business that counted as property in some states. Okay. So not the poor. Obviously not the poor. Western states, the further west you go, the more loose this interpretation becomes. So in the 1830s, Kentucky is actually going to give women who become heads of their household the right to vote. So So widows? Widows. Or you show up in Kentucky and you say you're a widow. Interesting. Yes. Because we do see a couple of cases of that. And this was during the like hundred year period where widows were the most liberated women in America. Right. Because you've already left your parents protection and through no fault of your own, your husband has now died. And land claims are so important that we have to have a way for families to hold on to those. And it's hard to live on the frontier. Life is rough in Kentucky. There's a good chance you could die. So you want your wife to be able to maintain your land and your claim so that it can pass on to your children. So this isn't exactly enlightenment. You know, we're not thinking like, oh, like women are equal to men. (laughs) But we have to use these women to get land in the hand of their sons eventually. I see. Okay. Yeah. But still, 1830s, some women have the right to vote in state elections. Okay. Not federal, but state. All right. So if we skip forward to the 1840s and 1850s. We have a conversation in this country about abolition. The abolition conversation, I think this is another place where we don't really teach a lot of nuance because I think that we hear the word abolition and we equate it with civil rights. Mm -hmm. And that is just not the case. So a radical abolitionist would have wanted all the slaves freed tomorrow and they have equal rights. The moderate abolitionist would say, let's begin freeing the slaves, but there's no way they're getting equal rights. They're not going to be slaves anymore. But they're not going to have full citizenship either. So Abraham Lincoln is a moderate abolitionist. Because there are so many ties between the way that we see former slaves and the way we see women, they're people, but they're not citizens. There is a natural connection between these two. Okay, that's interesting. So abolitionists and people working for women's suffrage have things in common. Yes, a common goal. Principally to be recognized as a human person. Yes. Okay. So everyone knows that Seneca Falls is an important moment. 1848, we have our first women's rights convention. We're going to get the Declaration of Sentiments. And this is going to outline some of the major issues that women are working for. Um, Primarily the idea that we want to be full citizens and that we want to have the right to vote. There are some minor arguments here like, hey, we also want to wear pants. (laughs) It should have been in there, man. That (laughs) seems important to me as a person who wears pants. Right. But you can see, like, where somebody has to, like, write this down, and they're like, come on, guys. (laughs) Top three. (laughs) We'll get to pants in the next decade. Right. We're working on it. It's not right now. Actually, it took about 50 years, right? Uh, 1880s, 1890s in some places. Okay, so then in the 1860s, we obviously have the Civil War. So the Civil War and then the coming Civil Rights Amendments of the Civil War split the abolition and the women's rights movement. There are some suffragists that see male African-Americans get the right to vote and they feel betrayed by this. So you're saying there are some women working for women's suffrage who feel negatively? Yes. As a result of male freed slaves earning the right to vote. Right. And if you think about it from their perspective, So it's not that they think, oh, they shouldn't have the right to vote. It's they shouldn't be the only ones getting this right to vote. Yes. 
And again, this is why we don't really teach this in school, right? Because there's no easy way to talk about this. We're going to see splits in the suffrage movement. The group that we probably are more familiar with is going to be Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Mm-hmm. And they have the National Women's Suffrage Association. Okay. But the other big group that people probably need to know about is the American Women's Suffrage Association, which is going to be Lucy Stone, Henry Blackwell, and Julia Ward. What's interesting is that both of those groups are located in the North. So if you're looking at this as a nationwide issue, this is still pretty regional. Southern women have not yet really adapted to this movement. So the the National Woman's Suffrage Association and the American Woman's Suffrage Association, one is in New York, one is in Boston. Yes, uh, New York is Stanton and Anthony. And, and Susan B. Anthony's was more radical in what way? So Anthony and Stanton are focused, laser focused on voting rights, whereas Stone, Blackwell and Howe are more looking at, OK, we eventually want to get there. But do we need to change society first? We need to soften this blow a little bit to get us there. They both want the same thing, but their question is in tactics, if that okay. makes more sense. Yeah. So, I mean. What is radical depends on your starting point. Okay, the same time that these groups are really getting up and going, Wyoming, again, a Western state, right, is going to allow women the right to vote in the state constitution. So when eight, in 1890, when it became a state. Yes. I now, don't think I've ever said this before, but way to go, Wyoming. <laughs> right. Okay, now part of the issue there is, oh, man, there's, again, there's no nice way to say this. Women are a valuable commodity in Wyoming, there are way more wi- men there than women. So you think they were trying to get women to move to Wyoming? Well, we're trying to make it attractive for women to go out there. Um, but again, also because there's so few women there, they did end up owning and having property. And if our real concern here is keeping land and property within the ownership of the people that already have it, well, then we have to give women the right to vote. So what I'm hearing you say is every time up into this point, which is 1890, that women have had the right to vote, it was still really about protecting men's power or doing something to benefit men. Beyond even just benefiting men, it's about keeping the status quo. Radical change is always hard. So if I have to give a few women the right to vote for us to not change society, then I will do that. Mostly for my own sake. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you probably have noticed that Missy and I are not using a term that most people would use to describe these activists. That term is suffragette. So you will know that notice that Missy used the word suffragists. Right. And I said things like people who were working for women's suffrage. The word suffragette is is common. People say it all the time. And it's not a derogatory word necessarily to uh, us. Like many words, it depends on the context. But historically, that the origin of that word is meant to be derogatory. So now it's historical and some people have even kind of reclaimed that term as a term of power. But we're talking about women's suffrage and suffrage is the right to vote. And that end piece of the word, right, et, E-T-T-E, is a diminutive suffix, okay? So I want you to think about something like a kitchenette, 
right? You're talking about a very small, not complete version of the kitchen, or you're talking about something that's an imitation or a substitute for a kitchen. And the third meaning of that suffix is denotes the female gender. So it's cute, it's little, it's female. And I I think originally it was meant to denote the female gender, and then it was used to denote things that were cute and incomplete and small. So it actually originally just meant female, but then it was used to mean small and cute and not quite complete or a substitute for. But either way, it's a diminutive suffix. And so, you know, you think about majorettes, right? You you hear this on the oh, end yeah. of a lot of words mm-hmm. that are related to women and females. And if a person chooses to use that word to describe themselves, great. If a person in a positive context refers to these women as suffragettes, great. But there's a reason, personally, the two of us tend to avoid that word. But there are also lots of important books with the word suffragette in the title. So we can't completely discount it. But it's not my favorite word. Again, this word actually comes from England, not from the United States, when journalists were first writing about these suffragists. And yeah, they were calling them cute and little. Oh, look, these adorable little women want the right to vote. (laughs) However, I will say this. The suffragist movement in England is much more radical than the American movement. Those women were tough as nails. If you get on Google and you can look up um, the parades that happened in England, these women are forcibly dragged off the street. They're sometimes beaten by the police. They are being, this happened in America too, they're force-fed these very high-protein diets when they get into jails. These women went through a lot. So in doing some research for today, I came across something that I actually didn't know. And I debated with Allegra whether we should put this in or not. And she said yes. I said yes in all caps. (laughs) So apparently there were some suffragist workers in England who, in response to this police brutality, learned jujitsu. So they were marching in the streets. And this is going to sound familiar. They're marching in the streets, demanding equal rights and were being attacked by the police. Yes. These women were seen as easy targets to some extent. Men didn't think that they needed to be fearful of them. And a lot of these women, you know, they were middle class and above. They were in corsets. They can't really move or fight back. Mm -hmm. So um, some recent research beginning about five years ago started digging into what these women did to combat this. And what they have found is that some of these women actually learned jujitsu. They were teaching other suffragettes how to fight and how to prevent themselves from being arrested by the police. It's pretty amazing. When and I think about suffragettes, I don't think about jujitsu in the street. So we will, uh, in the show notes, link one of the sources that has quite a few uh, great photographs of these are women doing jujitsu in the streets in the 19 teens, probably. Yes. yes. 1914, 1915. Isn't that amazing? It is. I love it. I would say it makes me want to learn jujitsu, but it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So going back to the United States in 1913, Alice Paul, which is also a name you have probably heard. No, really? Yes. But say really in a way that makes me feel more dumb. (laughs) I don't know. Really? Um, Alice Paul becomes the leader of the Congressional Union, 
which is a break off from the National, sorry, the National American Women's Suffrage Association. And she is going to adapt some of that more militant British style into the United States. And one really interesting thing about Paul is that she's a Quaker. A lot of activists in American history have been Quakers. Because part of the Quaker religious belief is that all people are the children of God and have the inner light of God in them. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Native American, an African American, a white American, a woman. You all have the light of God in you. So why are we not all equal? Okay, I don't know if I've said this either. Way to go, Quakers. There's also no hierarchy in the Quaker church. There's no um, preacher the way that we think about it in most Protestant senses. So if you're led to speak that day, you just stand up and you start speaking. Quakers do really well in this country until we get to Richard Nixon, and then it kind of falls apart for them. <laughs> These little offhand comments <laughs> just uh, make me interested in history, almost. So Alice Paul... She and breaks off from the actual suffrage associations, and she wants to be more active, more, like more what the British are doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, because the British have adopted this mindset of any means necessary, whatever it takes, we're getting the right to vote. And Paul feels like we've been doing this since 1848. We have done it for long enough. Let's just get the right to vote. So she's going to organize the women's suffrage procession which is a fairly well-known parade in Washington, D.C. This is happening right before Woodrow Wilson is inaugurated. If you Google suffragettes or suffrage parade, these are probably the pictures that are going to come up. It's the largest suffrage parade that they've had to this point, and it's attacked. Men run out and start attacking these women. There are police there, but no arrests are made. Several of these women end up in the hospital, over 100 of them, and this really becomes kind of a media firestorm. So the, what you're telling me is that the policemen were, or the police officers were present. These women get attacked. But they're sympathetic to the mob, not the protesters. And so they watch them get attacked and no arrests are made. You hear what you're saying, right? And <laughs> how familiar it sounds. If it makes you feel any better, the superintendent of police in Washington, D.C. lost his job over this because there is such a media outcry. The idea that we're going to see women... You know, these poor little women that we need to protect, these women are being hurt in the street. Hmm. That is just not something we're going to be okay with in 1915. It's just not going to happen. So he did face consequences, but because of paternalism and patriarchy. (laughs) Yes. Not because people are like, hey, you attacked people who were peacefully protesting. You shouldn't have done that. Okay. No. No. Um, Before we move on from the parade, there is one more person I want to point out. And that's going to be Mabel Ping Hu Lee. She's an immigrant from Hong Kong. She's only 16 years old. And she is the person that you see in the photographs at the very center leading part of the parade. She is going to work so hard for women to get the right to vote. She is an advocate. She's a scholar. She is just this brilliant person at 16 years old. When women finally get the right to vote in 1920, she doesn't get to vote. She's not old enough or she's not white. (sighs) Yep. What is wrong with this? Okay. Throughout 1916, 1917, we're going to see more activism, more people get arrested. Um, These women are sometimes held in solitary confinement. Sometimes they're given um, what we would consider extreme sentences, 60 days in jail for a protest, or they have to pay a $25 fine. Um, Most women are going to choose jail because they want their time to be noticed and to be Mm -hmm. reported on. Our jails at the time really were not built for women. 
they weren't built for humans, honestly. True. But the idea that these middle class, quote unquote, proper women are in these like really unsanitary, dirty places, that is uncomfortable for a lot of people. They are going to sometimes give interviews from themselves. They will speak when they get out about their treatment, what their food was like. They talk about finding worms in their food. That bothers a lot of people. Then we're going to get to World War One, And as you may or may not know, Woodrow Wilson says we have to go to war in World War One to make the world safe for democracy. This raises an interesting question. At what point is a nation a democratic nation? Hmm. Are we a democracy if 50% of our people can't vote? More than 50, but yeah. Yeah, at least 50. So this is going to regalvanize the movement. And we're going to see that last push to get us to the 19th Amendment. Uh, the House of Representatives is going to launch a committee in 1917 looking into women's suffrage and what this would mean. Um, I it, really it love would this. mean women have the right to vote. I don't really understand what we need to investigate, but oh, no, 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 like it's going to tear society apart. You're just not understanding. Our uterus is going to fall out again. <laughs> well, I guess if they did a lot of running. So this is a Massachusetts representative, Joseph Walsh, and here's a quote from him on this committee talking about the suffrage uh, suffrage movement in the parades. The nagging of iron-jawed angels is what he talks about them wanting the right to vote. And he later calls them bewildered, deluded creatures with short skirts and short hair. What a, just a wonderful person to be serving in the Congress. Right. So not super supportive. And he's the person who, he's just one of the members on the committee who has the best quotes. The worst quotes. Yes. So anti-suffragette propaganda is very, very big in this time. So I'm going to send you a couple of photos I want you to look at. Okay. Because unfortunately we are not in the studio together and I can't just turn my computer around. Okay. I'm frightened. So this is going to be anti-sup... What? Okay. So what do you see? I'm sorry. I need to zoom in. This can't possibly be accurate. Missy, you need to take this away from me. (laughs) Okay, so okay. we've got a man. Yeah, okay. So he's uh, doing some some cleaning, some laundry. There's a sign that says, everybody works but mother. She's a suffragette. It's supposed to look kind of like a needlepoint on the wall. And then there's an unattended baby. The man is wearing an apron that mm-hmm. I think is meant to kind of look like a skirt. So he's being... It's a very long apron, yes. Yeah. And then the bottom, the, I guess the caption is, I want to vote... But my wife won't let me. So is is it somehow emasculating? Yes. If we give women the right to vote, they will take it from the men. Really? The other thing that uh, these anti-suffragettes are going to argue is that it takes a lot of time to vote. And so if we give women the right to vote, they're not going to have time to watch the children or to do the laundry or to cook. How much? How much time do they think it takes? I vote for everything. I vote for my local school board elections. And I think all totaled throughout the year, it's maybe an hour and a half of voting. And I'm including drive time to go to the polls. Here's another one I'm sending you. Why? These are the three main arguments against suffragette. Okay, so we have a very startled, properly dressed gentleman who is being grabbed and kissed by a woman, also very properly dressed. But what color is she wearing? Well, she's wearing red, a long red dress, and the... I mean, it looks like she just came up on the street, grabbed him and kissed him. Um, mm-hmm. He's dropping his hat and his, his walking stick. And it says suffragette vote getting 
the easiest way. Are we now seducing people into giving us the right to vote? Is that what we this sure is are? Uh huh. Because how else could women convince men to give them the right to vote? Huh. So I know that this doesn't mean this to anybody today, but we used to publish these etiquette books for young girls that would say things like the sight of a bare ankle could drive a man to rape you. And if you're looking at this image, you definitely can see her ankle. So this is scandalous. And I just sent you my last one, and this is my favorite one. So let me just tell you, these women are all made to just be horrifically ugly in this drawing. Um, Homely. Just, I mean, giant red noses, teeth protruding out of their mouths, crazy looks on their eyes. This, so it's so women kind of gathered, watching someone on stage, signs in the back, down with man, husbands for old maids, someone lecturing them. And the caption is, at the suffragette meetings, you can hear some plain things and see them too. Yeah, who who would be a suffragist except for an old, ugly, unmarried lady? They all do have very fancy hats on, though, so... <laughs> I I just love this. That you do you you love it? I do because it's so funny to me that even their own arguments, their own internal logic is contradicting each other. So in the first one, we have a married woman who's off voting and neglecting her family. But in the last one, these are women that couldn't get married any other way and they're going to legislate themselves some husbands. And in the middle one, they're seducing you. Yes. It's like there's no internal logic. It's just we do not want these women to vote. So did it ever happen? Did we ever get the right to vote? Or have I been breaking the law my whole life? So 1920, the 19th Amendment does pass and some women get the right to vote. And again, this is where we don't add a lot of nuance to that story. Because Latino women can't vote. Native American women can't vote. African American women can't vote. Um, in places that are having poll taxes, poor women can't vote. It depends on your state. But generally... Adults being 21 and above, now 1920, male or female, who don't have a barrier in front of them, so like a poll tax, a grandfather clause, a good character test, could vote. So middle class and above, white people. So the phrasing of the amendment just says you can't deny or abridge the right to vote on the account of sex. So that means that any other obstacles or prohibitions in place for men would also apply. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... If there are places where only wealthy or educated or whatever, I mean, whatever those obstacles amount to, all that kind of voter suppression, it still basically amounts to white middle class and above women having the right to vote. Yes. And beyond that, just because women have the legal right to vote doesn't mean that every woman that could rushed out and voted. It took a long time for women to really begin using this power, even the ones that could. Because there was a few articles published where one woman says, I'd love to vote, but I don't want a divorce. So even though you now legally have that ability, maybe socially you don't. So the first election they could vote in was 1920. Yes. How many women voted? Of the ones that could, we think about 36% did. And again, the numbers are ballpark here. It gets hard to do this when you look at all the barriers and maybe who could, maybe who couldn't. But ballpark about 36%. What percent of men voted? Somewhere close to 70. Oh, so like a huge difference. Yes. Mm -hmm. Of the ones eligible. Yes. So some women thought that their husbands would divorce them. Some Some women women knew their husbands would divorce them. Some um, women were told in their church that a good Christian woman lets her husband lead the household. 
I'm so glad that we make a podcast and not a TV show because I could not control my facial expressions at all. So some people just generally thought it's not appropriate for me to do that. Right. And then the other question that this immediately raises for people is women have the right to vote. Does that mean they can also hold office? And that's a whole other set of crazy that we have to kind of delve into. Texas is the second state ever to elect a female governor. We only missed it, I think, by like 15 days. But the governor that we have running, she's only running because her husband got impeached. So when she runs, she says, my husband can't run again. But if you vote for me, I'll just let him run the government. Yeah. So. So I don't want like 1920 is not this like amazing, magical year where like everything gets immediately better. It took some time. Did people have to register to vote then? It's different from the way that we think about it now. But yes, most states do have some registration process. Okay. So before we get into a discussion of the pattern of women voting since we've had the right uh, to vote, I want to talk about some books, literature. Yay. But I know that was not real. So I started reading a novel called The Lines of Fifth Avenue by Fiona Davis. She writes historical fiction. I've talked about some of her books before uh, on our podcast when we talked about like the woman's hotel in New York City. Do you remember that? So I started reading this book. It just came out, I think, last month. And I started reading it because, I mean, I like the author, but also it's about a, a woman whose family lives in the New York Public Library. Oh, okay. Which I, yeah, so I thought was super interesting. But it turns out that this is in the 19 teens. The main character is a woman whose husband works for the New York Public Library. He's like kind of the superintendent of the operations. And they live in an apartment built into the library itself. And so uh, Laura, that's the main character's name. She's got a good life and a happy life. But like, you know, a lot of women at the time, she wanted a little bit more than she had access to or had ready access to. So she's going to journalism school. I'm only about halfway into the book, so I can't tell you how it ends. But I do know that coincidentally, she starts getting involved in the women's suffrage movement. Um, she discovers this kind of all-female activist group, and they are sharing opinions on women's rights and suffrage and contraception and things like that. And so she starts the book kind of wanting a little something more, and she's moving into questioning gender roles and traditional roles as wives. And and then there's a mystery. And just like most of Fiona Davis's books, part of the narrative is historical and part of it is more modern. In this case, the counterpart of the narrative is taking place in the 90s with the person who turns out to be this main character's granddaughter. Set in the New York Public Library. Uh, super good. But if you're interested in, I guess, what it was like for women at the time and this is a relatively comfortable, well-off woman, um, but just what it was like at that time. These books are very well-researched, but I think it gives us a very good con- context for what those women were experiencing and how little seeds of wanting a little something more kind of blew up into activism and, and change. And there are a lot of actual young adult books that are set during this time period or that cover this time period and we'll list them in the show notes. You don't have to like take notes, but my favorite is a book called saving Savannah 
And this is actually about a young girl in an African-American family in 1919 in Washington, D.C. And she meets some others and they work in the suffragist movement. So very cool books. I know you're not going to read them, Misty. That's okay. So the link that we're going to post in the show notes with the novels is actually to the New York Public Library's page on uh, women's suffrage reads for fiction lovers. Again, that's why it's a coincidence. I just started reading the lines of Fifth Avenue and then we were going to do the show. And then I found this list of books that that Fiona Davis book happens to be on. But there's a list of books set in the United States and a list of books set um, in England, because, as you said, these were happening at the same time. Yeah, there's really like a global movement all happening at the same time. But American England, to our credit, were some of the earliest to give nationwide the women the right to vote. I think France doesn't get their top after World War II. So we women get the right to vote, 1920. It's a yes. slow start. Where's it gone from there? So since 1920, this story is mostly positive. There's this question early on um, if women would form almost their own party. Would they vote in a block? And it turns out that no, women generally don't do that, much like men. They have their own political ideas and can separate themselves out. Hard to believe. It's crazy, right? So you have several organizations that form just trying to get women educated and ready for the right to vote. The League of Women Voters is one that still exists today. If you're looking for a good political candidate guide, I highly, highly, highly recommend them. They're very thorough, very well done. And we also see some women immediately start organizing for something called the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. That does get through Congress, but it's never ratified by the states. So it's not something that goes into effect. But it does kind of put out into our culture this idea that men and women should be equal in all ways, not just in voting. So I think that just having that conversation in the background helps sort of fill in some of these gaps. But what we're starting to see since the 1960s is that women are becoming a more important part of our voting electorate. More women that can vote register now than men that are eligible. So women have become a really important part of any voting calculations. Beginning in 1980, women who are eligible exceed men who are eligible. So now if you want to win an election, you cannot ignore the women. And this is something that you'll see a lot um, in the current election right now. They're talking about the suburban woman vote, which is coded language for a lot of things that we can dive into if you really want to. (laughs) But this idea of how are the women going to go? Because if you can get a majority of the women, you're going to win. Yeah. And like you said, right, all women don't vote the same way or for the same party or have the same priorities. But there are some things that uh, women are more are paying more attention to or tend to prioritize more. So um, healthcare for women, a lot of almost anything to do with education or children. Yes. And it's not that only women care about those or that women only care uh, about those issues, but it just it tends to be things that women prioritize higher and emotional appeals uh, work differently on groups of women. And again, a lot of things come into play, right? Religion and region and and wealth and lots race of things, and age. All lots of, it. of things impact um, the decisions that people make. To vote, But yes, if you listen to a speech or a debate and then you listen to the people discuss and break it down, they're going to talk about how something played with women, how something played with suburban women, which tends to mean college educated white women. That's what they're that's what they mean when they say that if they talk about ex urban, that means even wealthier college educated white women typically is what that's code for. 
Um, but they talk about how things play with mothers and all kinds of stuff. And that's what politicians are good at is figuring out how to address particular groups and demographics and what to say to persuade uh, people with different priorities. But it is clear if you listen to political speech that people are appealing to or attempting to appeal to women, some more than others. Sorry, the Navy is doing war games or something today. You can't call them and tell them you're trying to record a podcast? You know, I wish I could. It won't be persuasive to them? I don't think they're going to care. Okay. Um, I do want to say that black women tend to be the group that is most consistent in voting. Um, We see high numbers of black women turn out in almost every major election. Um, Hispanic, white, and Asian women are about 50% of 50% of those eligible vote. Yes. We're about 70% of black women vote. And what's really interesting is if you look at this statistically, if you can convince women who are 18 to 34 to vote, if you could get that demographic, then you'll win any election. But that demographic is very, very hard to motivate to vote. I will say I do care now that I'm older than 34 than I did when I was younger. I've, I've voted in every presidential election since 2000, but the little stuff which is equally important, but less publicized. But those are your years when you're like early in your career and you're in child raising, or maybe you're still in college where you just have a lot of stuff competing for your attention. And you don't have a great connection to how local elections or midterm elections really impact your life. Right. Exactly. It's not that those are uneducated or ignorant voters, but you, you know, you're working and you're paying taxes, but you're not really thinking about the school board until maybe you have school age children or, you know, school age children. So, yeah, your priorities change and we need to motivate younger people to vote in all years. Yeah. And it's, it's just a hard group to reach because, again, you are competing with just so much in their daily lives. So you did a good job of giving us this narrative history, (laughs) this narrative history of women's suffrage. And in the course of your narrative history here, a lot of the the names that most of us are familiar with have come up. Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony, whose name just skipped out of my brain. But. Do you need me to buy you a Barbie? Please do. And you told us about one young woman I had never heard of before. Oh, Mabel. Mm -hmm. Mabel and Alice Paul, maybe? Is that the right name? Yes. Okay. So I want to talk about one more suffragist. Yeah, this is hard, right? Because there are so many names that we need to put back in the narrative, but we would be here for years if we tried to do all of them. So I want to talk about Ida B. Wells, who I'm sure you've heard of because Mm -hmm. you've heard of all historical individuals. Uh, She was a journalist and a researcher originally from Mississippi and then lived in Tennessee. What's interesting to me about her is that she's born in 1862 into slavery in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Her parents were politically active during Reconstruction. In fact, so politically active that her father helped start a historically black liberal arts college in Mississippi, Russ College. Uh, Ida B. Wells attended Russ College, but was expelled uh, after having a dispute with the college president. Her parents died of yellow fever, and so she was responsible for raising uh, her brothers, her brother and her sisters, 
So she took a job. She convinced someone that she was older than she was. She took a job as a teacher. Eventually, she moved to Memphis in 1882. Her brother found a job as a carpentry apprentice. She went to Fisk University. She kept her job as an educator. When she was about 22 years old, she had a first-class train ticket and was uh, forcibly removed from the train. They were because she was to- black? Well, they were trying to get her to move into the African-American train car. And she said, I have a first class ticket. I'm not moving. And so then they kicked her off of the train. She filed a lawsuit against the train company. She won that. They appealed and the train company won in this Tennessee Supreme Court. So you see that she's already she's not a passive or quiet person, right? She is working hard. She's an educator. She's going to college. But when these injustices occur, she has to she feels that she has to do something about them. She ends up owning two newspapers, the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight, and then one called Free Speech. When she taught, she taught in a segregated school and she often would write criticisms of segregation. So, again, an injustice that she doesn't idly abide. She's fired from teaching in 1891 because she was criticizing segregation. And she became very interested in investigating and reporting on lynchings. And she published these things in pamphlets and in newspapers. She wrote articles criticizing and investigating lynchings and basically calling attention to this injustice and this mob rule. She's very interested in mob violence. And her research made people so mad that she brought mob violence upon herself. They burned her printing press and drove her out of town in 1892 when she was 30. So that's what she did as a young person. She eventually got married and had children. And Missy, unlike a Disney movie, that's not where her story ends. It doesn't end with a wedding. (laughs) Yay. So she gets married and she has children. She starts traveling internationally, continuing to shed light on lynchings in America. She confronts white women in the suffrage movement for ignoring lynching and not bringing attention to these issues of, of violence and social justice, not popular among American suffragists. uh, But she did actively work for women's rights to vote. She founded something called the national association of colored women's club, which worked to address civil rights and suffrage concerns for women She was in Niagara Falls for the founding of the NAACP, though her name is not included on its list of founders. She just advocated for things her entire life. In her later years, she and her family lived in Chicago, and so she started to focus on urban reform and issues of city life. And she died in 1931 and was awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 2020. One good thing happened this year. (laughs) We found Uh, it. (laughs) <laughs> the Pulitzer Prize uh, Committee awarded it to her for her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African-Americans during the era of lynching. And then we're obviously going to give you uh, links in our show notes if you want to know more about Ida B. Wells. I, I just love that this is a woman who just looks like she does not put up with nonsense. Yeah, and it's and the details of her life bear that out. She does not put up with nonsense. And even the pictures of her as, as an older woman. She looks she's formidable. She, deal, she dealt with more and more nonsense as she got older. And so after she got married, she was she was known as Ida B. Wells Barnett. She hyphenated her last name, which I don't know statistically, but I don't think that was super 
common in the 1920s. So probably not. um, She did keep part of her. She did keep her main name as part of her last name. So very cool person, but not necessarily part of that suffragist establishment. If if we can say that, Um, I know that the suffragists were already kind of anti-establishment, but she was outside of their establishment as well. If they were being hypocritical, if they were ignoring issues she thought were important, she wasn't going to sit back and let it happen. She was going to call attention to that. So super impressive that I do okay reporting on history. Yeah, and it's really just fantastic to be able to say that she has a Pulitzer now. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she would have liked to have gotten that in her lifetime, but better late than never. Progress, not perfection. Yeah, and someone's here to mow my lawn, so I'm sure that's going to sound great. (laughs) I know, of all the things we have to accept in 2020, slightly degraded sound quality on a podcast is probably not chief among most people's concerns, so I'm not going to worry about it too. (laughs) Appears to be right outside my window. Oh, I miss our studio. There are hundreds of women. Yes stories could be told we could have a whole podcast just about suffragists and um, somebody should do that i feel like there could be whole books just about that parade so we are not claiming to have given you an exhaustive history but this is as missy put in our show notes title the obligatory suffragist episode which i don't think felt obligatory but it was meant to be kind of the big the large scope um, history of women's suffrage. <laughs> it's like someone's out there directing him <laughs> to your window as a prank. Yes. Yeah, I think if you have what you're purporting to be a feminist podcast and it's the 100th year anniversary of some women getting the right to vote, you can't ignore that. So I do think we had to do this, but I do want people to know like we tried to add a little bit of nuance, but there's so much more, mm-hmm. which maybe means we should talk about it again. Uh, our next episode will be uh, also in part about women's suffrage. So we're not done. So what's next in your lady life? So I think we were going to talk here about voting, right? Or did I, I think we should up? always talk about voting all the time? Okay. So I first voted in 2000 and that was Gore v. Bush. Yeah. Probably an election most people are familiar with. And well, Florida, Florida, yes. Florida, Florida. And what's next in my lady life is absolutely voting early in the state of Texas My parents are from Chicago, so they like to say vote early and vote often, but I don't think that's a joke that's going to go over particularly well this year, so I'll just say I'm going to vote early. So I was first able to vote in a presidential election in 2004. My birthday is in December, so I missed 2000 by a month. I was real sad about that. You probably were. I really was. As a a 17-year-old, you probably were sad about it. I was so mad. I'm like, if I had just been born 30 days before, I could vote right now. Um, But yeah, I'm also going to go vote. We make it a big deal. My husband goes, my daughter goes, we show her that this is what you have to do. This is the price for living in a democracy. You actually have to go vote on Saturdays. Going on a Saturday. Yeah. And don't make the mistake of telling your child they can push the button for you because that is illegal. I thought it would be a fun way to involve (laughs) a kid in the process. Don't do it. No, they get real mad. Yeah, I didn't have her push the button, but I did say when we were in line, maybe you can push the button. And then one of the poll workers was like, you have to push it. I was like, "Okay." My daughter's very excited because if I vote and her dad votes, she gets two stickers. 
I mean, you can just take as many stickers as you want. Yeah, but... Oh, you're one of these rule-following people. Yeah. I keep forgetting that about you, Misty. The idea that you're just taking stickers is so offensive to me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Professed Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and I believe in a strict sticker policy. And I'm Allegra. I believe in a redistribution of stickers. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, which you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is extremely great, but probably not as great as the suffragists. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, vote. That's all. Just, you should vote. That's it. I'm not addicted to stickers. Do you have more than 20 stickers in your home?